Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Okay, look, we just don't have a lot of time. We all know per the settled science that the planet is very nearly done for, and there's not a thing we can do about it. Or there is. Or not. I'm not really sure. But what I do know for sure is that either way we need to do something. So today, we're going to answer the age-old question of, where's the beef? We're then going to slow things down. Way down. We're talking very slow. Angeringly slow. And then we'll just have to talk about Ukraine and Putin's absolute disregard, disdain, and maniacal plot to commit climate genocide. It's simply unfathomable. So, grab your favorite tofu or insect-based snack, check your car charging app to see how many days you'll have to wait for a full charge, and don your gas mask. Here we go. Where's the beef? Where's the beef? Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. Oh, Clara Peller, all you wanted was a nice, meaty, all-beef hamburger patty, and Wendy's was there to answer the call. I gotta imagine that today you're likely spinning in your grave like a lathe. Headline from SciTechDaily.com Avoiding climate catastrophe. Global elimination of meat production could save the planet. Well, I mean, how do you argue with this? As I've said before, I, I kind of like this planet. All of my stuff is here. Then again, if we have to give up meat in order to save the planet, is, is the world even worth saving? I think we need to answer this question. So look, I love the dramatic way these climate alarmists use the language in order to try to invoke as much fear and panic as possible. Phrases like climate catastrophe and save the planet. All right, let's start with a few points that must be discussed. First, although there are a few climate nuts that truly believe we're heading to absolute heat death of this planet if we keep driving cars and eating meat, most of the scientists that I've heard and that I've read are talking about avoiding an approximate rise of 1.5 degrees Celsius of the global temperature. Apparently, it's at that point that the climate scientists say our seas will rise, crop production will be drastically affected, resulting in famines, species of animals will die out, glaciers will melt, etc., etc., blah, yada, blah, yada. Now, personally, I kind of have a hard time seeing how 1.5 degrees C would do all of this, <laughs> but what do I know? Second point, as I've stated multiple times before, the exact level of greenhouse gases, the exact global temperature at steady state, the point where it stops changing, is not known. And without knowing that, we don't know if what we humans are doing has any effect, let alone how much. The reality for nearly all climate scientists and hypocritical celebrities that fly their private jets to exotic locations to discuss how we plebes need to change our habits in order to save the planet is that they like the temperature of the planet where they're used to it. They don't want the seas to rise because that might flood their multi-million dollar home situated right on the edge of the water. 
And let me be clear, I have no problem with someone having such a home. I have a problem with them wanting to drastically change and inconvenience my life so that their poor building choice is safe. Your poor life choice doesn't constitute an emergency for me. I hate to tell you. So let's take a look at this article. The premise of the article is laid out in the first short paragraph. Quote, eliminating all animal agriculture within the next 15 years would drastically reduce greenhouse gas emissions and also pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Aha, but only all the animal agriculture in no more than 15 years from now. Oh boy. Okay. So a study was done on the global harm done by me wanting a bacon cheeseburger or a nice piece of chicken, medium rare. <laughs> okay. Don't do that. That's totally a joke. This study encompassed the methane emissions of animals, the amount of land that is no longer green space so that animals used for meat, milk, or eggs, etc., have a place to live and the amount of land that's no longer green space because it's being used to raise crops for these animals that, I mean, they just want to be fed. If we eliminated all animal agriculture, it would eliminate the methane and nitrous oxide being emitted and allow the cleared land to go back to natural green space, meaning we'd stop putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and the new greenery would suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. Nothing like killing two, well, not birds, cows. Nothing like killing two cows with one bolt gun, right? Okay, look, I'm simply not going to go over all of the numbers that they have in this article. It's linked. You can read this if you'd like to. I'll give you a little bit of a gist here. They claim that if we did this, it would be like cutting annual CO2 emissions by 68%. And as one of the people involved in the study said, we must do this, quote, because we have dithered in responding to the climate crisis. It's now necessary to avert climate catastrophe. Okay, first of all, dithered, fantastic word, nicely done. That's about where I end with the compliments. He further goes on to say, in fact, we should make this as high of a priority as the elimination of using fossil fuels. So get rid of meat, get rid of animal products, get rid of fossil fuels. And then, then we can just sit back and enjoy our existence, I guess. <laughs> we Okay. At this point, a question you might have is, who did this study? Well, that, my friend, is a solid question. You're probably thinking something like a UN Climate Council or maybe even our very own EPA. Well, that's stupid. Don't think those things. No, it was privately funded by the CEO of Impossible Foods. You know, the company that makes the plant-based meat substitutes that I'll never, ever try. Ever. And... It was done with a professor at UC Berkeley, yes, arguably the most insane college in the United States, who happens to also be a consultant for, drumroll, you guessed it, Impossible Foods. And both of these guys are vegans. So not a shred of conflict of interest. I mean, totally unbiased, totally scientific. Now, as part of this study, they do admit that animal products are key in most countries for proper nutrition, comprising approximately 18% of calories, 40% of protein, and 45% of fat in our diets. 
But you know, they're pretty sure that they can replace all of that with yummy, yummy plants. Okay, well, if they're right, if we need to do this to avoid climate catastrophe, well, then so be it. But your next question is likely, how did they arrive at such a conclusion, as it seems very drastic? Now, I have to say, you are on fire with your questions today. It's almost like you're reading my mind. Well, they started by stating the very obvious, even to a dummy, premise that, quote, everybody knows that methane is a problem. Everybody knows that livestock contribute to global warming in some way, but animal ag contributes to global warming in two ways. Look, I know that I knew that because I am most definitely part of everybody. So how did they arrive at their conclusion? Well, quote, the two scientists spent the pandemic years researching climate models and climate change literature to quantify the direct and indirect impact of eliminating animal agriculture worldwide. Ha! Huh. So they studied what other greeny wackos, I'm sorry, I mean, climate scientists said is happening and why, and they studied models which are as unbelievably precise as the data that the model maker decides to include in the model. Boiled down, their entire study was nothing more than a study in confirmation bias. They had a theory, looked at data and models from others with the same theory, decided they must all be right since they all agree, and then they backed out the numbers from the other people that agree with them to use for the study. This would be like me saying that, I want to smoke a cigar a day and drink whiskey all night and then find a guy that lived to a hundred who said his trick to a long life was a cigar a day and whiskey at night and then me drawing the conclusion that I must be correct so 100 years old here I come. Now looking at this study it's it's much less of a study it's much more of a business plan I think. Okay look maybe I'm being a bit too harsh all right you might have sensed a, a slight bit of sarcasm. Maybe they're right. Let's look at their two basic conclusions. Their first conclusion, plant-based foods can offer the same nutrition as animal-based foods. And their second conclusion, plant-based foods is much, much better for the planet than animal-based foods. So can plants offer the same nutrition as animals? Well, I mean, short answer is, yeah, you can live on only plants. Plants will offer the nutrition you need to live, although I have seen a handful of stories arguing that you shouldn't try to raise a baby or a child, especially a younger child, as vegan, as they do not get the vital proteins, fats, and minerals they need in order to develop and function properly. But let's take for granted you can generally live a full life on nothing but plants. So how do the plant-based foods compare to the real thing? Well, being plants, you'd suspect they're much healthier, okay? An article on CNET.com, Impossible Burger versus Beef, which is healthier, a study was done to determine how these things stack up against each other. They stated that the Impossible Burger and similar products by other manufacturers give the appearance of and the taste and feel of the real thing. So that's not in question. I'm still not trying it. So then they looked at the nutritional value. Comparable amounts of 90% lean beef and Impossible Burger come out with relatively close to the same number of calories and fat, although the Impossible Burger has slightly more saturated fat. 
And then that's where the similarities seem to end. The Impossible Burger has no cholesterol. Meat has 90 milligrams. It has three grams of fiber where the meat has none. But the meat has 70 milligrams of sodium where the Impossible Burger has 370 milligrams, which is about 20% of your recommended daily intake. Meat has no carbs where the Impossible Burger has nine grams. And the meat has 26 grams of protein versus 19 grams for the Impossible Burger. But keep in mind that not all proteins are the same. Plant protein is not a direct replacement for animal protein. Now, granted, these nutrition values are based on making a burger-like patty out of the plants, something that looks, feels, and tastes very close to a meat burger. I'm still not trying it. So the carbs, the sodium, those could be dramatically reduced if you just ate the plants rather than processing them. But that's not what Impossible Foods is pitching. Let's keep that in mind. They're saying that they can replace meat. So overall, the Impossible Burger, to my eye, it seems to be a less healthy option. And just as if all we ate was meat, only eating plants would result in an incomplete level of overall nutrients. So for premise number one, can plant-based foods offer the same nutrition? Well, no. They, they really can't. They're close, but they can't. Most nutritionists would recommend a healthy balance. So only meat or only plants would both be incomplete. So what about premise number two? Plant-based foods would save us from climate catastrophe. Well, as luck would have it on CNET.com again, impossible burger versus beef, which is better for the environment. The byline states, replacing your usual burger with a plant-based version might not have as big an impact as you thought. Boil down, this really comes down to where you draw your boundaries. Now, I won't go through this entire article either, but there is a massive difference in the greenhouse dangers of methane versus CO2, if you even buy into that. There's a big difference between climate and environment. In fact, depending on the study, which are dependent on the inputs, the assumptions, and the boundaries, it's possible that plant-based foods are actually worse for the environment. Here are some basic points they make. As populations increase, it takes less land to feed them with plants. Okay, I can see that. They make the point that studies don't agree as to the greenhouse gas contribution from livestock, ranging anywhere from 2.8% to 14.5%. That's a big spread. And methane, which is one of the gases they complain about, dissipates relatively quickly, unlike CO2. Looking beyond just the meat, comparing a gallon of cow milk to a gallon of almond milk, and let me just say, I've eaten almonds. I've never seen the teats on an almond that I could milk. I digress. The cow milk has a carbon footprint 10 times higher, but the almond milk needs 17 times more water in order to make it. So which is better and which is worse? Depends on what you're trying to do. And then experts on both sides of the debate, at least in this story, agree that comparisons between beef and cars or planes with regard to greenhouse emissions are ridiculous. The carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels is completely different than those from a carbon life form eating and processing carbon-based food. What I tried to look up 
but appears to be more difficult to find than at least I'm willing to put the time into is what is the overall environmental impact producing, say, a pound of beef versus a pound of plant-based alternative? They both require resources. They both require machines. They both require processing. They both require transportation and on and on and on. So is the carbon footprint really that much different? I really don't know. Maybe it is. If you know, send me an email or leave a comment. But make sure you bring facts. Don't bring me biased articles. Don't bring me feelings. Just bring some facts. So even in this CNET article, they recommend just being smart with your meals. Regardless of how you mix and match your foods, they say that about 20% of animal source foods are wasted and about 50% of all plant-based foods are wasted. That should tell you something. And when you throw away food, you're throwing away all the stuff that went into making, transporting, and preparing the food. Just be smart planning your meals. I think that's actually a pretty good way to look at it. So as a Christian, what do we do? Well, as I've said before, we are to be stewards of the planet, of the animals, of the resources. We're called to care for, but fill up and use the planet. We are not called to worship the creation rather than the creator, although that's exactly what Paul said we were doing all the way back at the end of Romans 1, and of course that trend continues today. Now going all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, it begins this way, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Now, to think that nobody in the 1500 years prior to the global flood discovered that cooked meat both smelled and tasted good would be silly. But this is where God officially opened up animals as a source of food for man. Now, we know that when the law was given to Moses, there were very specific dietary restrictions for the Jewish people as to what types of animals they could and couldn't eat. But then in Acts 10, Peter was given a vision by God. Quote, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. Now, this vision served two purposes. It was a figurative vision that unlocked the giving of the gospel, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the plan of God. And it was a literal removal of the dietary restrictions of the Jewish culture. So animals are clearly ordained by God to be food for us as our plants. But as Satan does, he takes what God has done, what God has ordained, and he twists it just a little. God has given us a beautiful, resilient, abundant planet full of life, vitality, land, and resources. We're told to subdue it. Man says to leave it alone to do whatever it's going to do. 
We're told to be fruitful and multiply. Man says that we're overpopulated and advocates for abortion, euthanasia, child-bearing limits, birth control, and so on. We're called to be a steward of the planet. Man says that we need to worship the earth. Maybe in not so many words, but, but let's be honest. We're given plants and animals for food. Man says we must eliminate animals as food sources to save the planet. Man says we're going to cook the planet because of our actions. God says the planet, all planets, the heavens, the stars, will all be consumed with fire, but not until his timing, for his purpose, and then he'll remake everything perfectly. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be exclusively a carnivore or a vegan. I'm not saying that plant-based meat alternatives are bad. I'm, I'm still not trying them. I'm not saying being mindful of our consumption, our environmental impact is bad. I'm saying that when your life choices cross from being choices to being pagan worship of the creation rather than the creator, now you've gone too far. You are now, in fact, sinning. And so what we need to do is to be sure that in whatever we do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I toyed with the idea of starting a segment we can call Dan's Rants, but there would likely be some of you that would say, isn't that what you're doing already? To which I would say, hey. Anyway, this started off with just an absolutely ridiculous article rife with pure, unadulterated, oblivious insanity. Of course, as questions are raised in my mind as past bits of information slowly surface through the muck in my head, we've gone past just the base insanity to a plausible future possibility. I'm going to cover a lot of information quickly in this review, and just a warning, I won't be fleshing out all of the rabbit trails that can be gone down as I think it may be nearing infinity possible trails. But let's start with the article of insanity. Originally written by the Wall Street Journal, I, I think, but I'm not paying eight dollars a month to get their online version. So I looked around and it's been reposted pretty much everywhere. So I found this on thenyledger.com headline, for maximum EV efficiency, stick to 25 miles an hour, ignore angry drivers. Need I elaborate anymore? Do you see the insanity here? Jeez. EV, by the way, is electric vehicle. So the premise of the story isn't anything new. People turning the quest for the most distance covered on a single tank of gas has been going on for many moons, and this is exactly the same, but rather than a tank of gas, it's a single charge. The story specifically relates six stories of those who have dabbled in this lunacy. In brief, Mr. Fergal McGrath, along with Mr. Kevin Booker, set a Guinness World Record in July, traveling in a Ford Mustang Mach-E for 840 miles at an average of 40 miles per hour, taking them 27 hours. Now, if you're a nerd like me, you see that an average of 40 miles per hour in 27 hours is more than 840 miles. I'm guessing they stop to eat and use the restroom, switch drivers, etc. McGrath said, quote, we had some honks and angry people behind us, end quote. Uh, you think? Mr. Wayne Gerdes, Gerdes, traveling in a Toyota Mirai, a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, drove the 405 through Southern California, an interstate that's notoriously congested. He went two days, making it 845 miles, a Guinness World Record for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, 
one of his tricks was to try not to stop. If he saw things backing up, up ahead, he would slow to a crawl to avoid full stops. He said, quote, I'll intentionally slow down the four or five cars behind me so that we all maintain momentum. They don't understand what's going on, end quote. Good. Mr. Felix Egolf decided to take his Volkswagen ID.3 electric vehicle through the Alps. He drove carefully up the mountains, letting people pass, and slightly more quickly down as he coasted, but had his foot on the brakes just a little bit during the descent in order to try to regen as much power as possible back into the batteries. He said, quote, you're constantly trying to get as much current back into your battery as you can. It's like you're a hungry grizzly, always on the search for food, end quote. In June, a team of eight drivers, eight, eight Bob, drove a Renault or a Renault, depending on where you're from, Zoe, for more than 24 hours around a racetrack at the blistering average speed of 19 miles per hour. They covered a total of 475.4 miles, which was nearly double the rating for the Renault. Mr. Sean Mitchell and companion drove around a one-mile loop of public roads near the Denver airport for 32 hours in a Tesla Model 3 at 25 miles per hour. They did what they could to not stop, including having friends pull alongside them with burritos in a fishing net for them to grab to eat. The end result was 606.2 miles on a single charge. And finally, a story of desperation. In 2020, Mr. Phil Smith, in his Tesla Model 3, found that on his four-month trip around Australia, the high-voltage charger he planned to use was out of service, so he did a minimal charge from a low-voltage socket and continued on his trip. The onboard computer calculated the maximum allowable speed to get him to the next town with 2% battery left. The story doesn't tell us what speed, but it does say that he, quote, crawled to the next town, arriving with a whopping 4% battery left. He stated, quote, watching that screen, it's like a trauma. Am I going to get through this? They wrap up by giving some good, no, nay, nay, great hypermiling tips. Don't accelerate or brake sharply. Be gentle. Try not to come to a complete stop. So look for upcoming red lights or traffic so you can come to a crawl rather than a stop. Use cruise control, but not on downhills. So help you if you use it on downhills. You want to gently tap the brakes, the entire downhill slope, and regen them electrons. Oh, and keep the AC off because that takes power. And don't put the windows down because that's added drag. And you probably don't want to use heat or the radio, you know, electrons. So what's the point of all this? Well, most of these were sponsored events so the manufacturers could show you that you can trust your EV to get you to your destination. And nothing makes me feel better than to know I can crawl my way to the next charging station, arriving on battery fumes, sweating with a high level of anxiety and a sweltering cabin. Looking up the longest stretch of road between gas stations in the U.S., a claim is made that a stretch between Lakeview, Oregon and Winnemucca, Nevada is 211 miles long without fuel. You know what any gas or diesel-powered car can do? Go 211 miles with no cause for anxiety. The only reason we run out of gas in the U.S. is because we're too lazy, too preoccupied, or we just love that adrenaline rush you get from playing the I've got plenty game. So the premise of selling your electric vehicles by showing that you'll probably make it to the next charger, hopefully it's a supercharger, is kind of crazy. 
Not to mention the traffic backups and wasted time caused by crawling along, either on purpose or out of necessity, inconveniencing everyone around you. Time is money. Time can also be time spent with family, or time before you can get to bed after a grueling day, or time may be of the essence for an injured person somewhere behind you. One thing's for sure, we don't get time back. In the immortal words of Dr. Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. But EVs, whether we want them or not, are being thrust upon us. Good old President Joe Biden, whether he knows it or not, wants the consumers in the U.S. to be buying 50% EVs or plug-in hybrids by 2030. You know, that's only eight years away, right? And right now, that number stands at uh, two. Two percent. Although the sales fell sharply the last couple years, we're talking about a minimum of 1.5 million new EVs on the road by 2030, and then every year thereafter. As of now, there are 45,000 charging stations, but thanks to tax dollars, Biden wants to increase that number to 500,000. But keep in mind, charging stations aren't like gas stations. A charging station is a charger. A gas station has, what, four to 40 pumps? Maybe more? I don't know. So the 500,000 chargers that if they're superchargers, will take you about an hour to get mostly full, or about 170,000 gas stations with, say, an average of what? Six pumps, eight pumps, probably higher, with the average fill time being maybe five minutes tops. This should work out so very well, and I'm not even going to mention the aging and overburdened electrical grid across the country that also needs to be carbon neutral soon, while we get rid of fossil fuel plants and move to solar and wind and hopes and rainbows. I shall not mention that at all. Based on all of this, how do they get the consumer to buy into the ev evolution? I know the technology is still fairly new, but remember, we're at 2% of sales right now. That's well under 100,000 new EVs on the road in the U.S. per year at this point. Well, you make it so that it's so frustrating to drive your gas-powered car, or so expensive, that you'll be first begging for an electric car, and next begging for public transport. You know, like choo-choo trains. In the infrastructure bill that we just had to pass, because, you know, we needed it for infrastructure, they buried a little old requirement for all new cars starting in 2026, that's four years away to you and me, to have a kill switch that can be operated by law enforcement or other government officials if needed. As with everything, this is stated as a good thing. It stops high-speed chases, but how long before it's either hacked into or used by the authorities just because? Marry that to the requirement already existing that by 2026, uh, that's four years away to you and me, a breathalyzer type of key will be implemented into all new cars, so you can't start your car if the computer determines you're impaired. So how long does it take to use all of this nefariously? Ah, not long, I'm sure. We can now be controlled coming and going in our private property. All of this is fine. It seems fine. It's just fine. Everything is fine. Every generation has stated that they're in the end times, and that's correct. All time after Jesus' ascension is technically the end times, but are we at the point of the mark of the beast and the rapture and all of that? I have no idea. To be totally honest, I'm not overly worried about it. 
I know that the mark of the beast will not be something like what people are concerned with now, a vaccination that's going to turn into it. it it'll be a voluntary thing. Those who take it or refuse it will know exactly what they're doing. It will be a selling of your soul. All of these moves that are being made, down to even the inconvenience and the added external controls, they're all going to play a role to those who refuse the mark, whatever that is, to be able to shop and eat and travel and the like. Like I said, I'm not saying this is coming any day, although, I mean, it could. But when you see these types of changes, large or small, think about how this could play out in the future. Don't walk through the world blind and oblivious. Don't panic. God is sovereign, and nothing can happen that God doesn't allow, but be vigilant, be aware, be awake. See, I, I told you that the initial article led me down all sorts of rabbit trails. Does anyone else think like this? Hey, Ukraine, am I right? Uh, let's take a look at the Ukraine crisis, because we kind of need to. It would have been a much more considerate and a, and a much friendlier invasion if Russia had only used electric tanks and hydrogen-powered aeroplanes and zero-emission missiles and carbon-neutral ships. But, but no, they don't care at all about the rising oceans and what it'll do to property values in the United States. <laughs> Jerk. From Fox News, because you're not going to find this story on a left-leaning news site, at least not this way, headline, John Kerry fears Russia-Ukraine war will distract from climate change. The interview in which he vomited out these invaluable pearls of wisdom was given a couple days before Putin looked at the world and said, I can has Ukraine? So I'd imagine, starting early Thursday morning, as smoke rose into the air, as pollution-belching tanks spewed their globular and heating toxins high into the atmosphere, Mr. Secretary Tsar Kerry was likely rending his garments, covering himself in ashes, inconsolably wailing, begging Mother Gaia for mercy. Plus, you know, the dead people and the loss of freedom and the generally horrible human toll caused by the invasion. But, but look at the smoke! Okay, enough sarcasm. Well, eh, eh, let's hold off on that for just a minute. Let's take a look at the story. He started by making the comment that he was concerned for the people of Ukraine and because the well-established principles of international law and how it's a big no-no to try to change borders by force were at risk. He further went on to say that he thought the world knew better, that the world knew that it was a no-no to do that kind of tomfoolery. I mean, that's not a direct quote, but it's really not that far off, to be honest. And then comes the, uh, the gold, Jerry. Gold! He says... Oh, and I quote, But it could have a profound negative impact on the climate, obviously. You have a war, and obviously you're going to have massive emissions consequences to the war. But equally importantly, you're going to lose people's focus. You're going to lose certainly big country attention because they will be diverted, and I think it could have a damaging impact. Okay, that was a direct quote. Anyone else have a hard time following the word choice there? <clears throat> he went on further to say that if Russia invades Ukraine, it will have a massive effect on not only the ability, but also the willingness of people to do all they can to reduce global emissions, and it'll really hamper the, the climate agenda. Oh, well, now we know. I, I wonder if anyone told old Vlad about this. 
Maybe if Biden had mentioned that to him, or or if maybe a UN climate envoy hand-delivered a strongly worded memo to Putin about the potential damage to not only the climate, but also the climate agenda, maybe he wouldn't have done it. And even now, I, I wonder if maybe our illustrious and totally cognizant and often mostly awake president explained to Putin the jeopardy he's putting that climate agenda in, maybe Putin would say, Was that wrong? <laughs> Should I not have done that? I tell you, I gotta plead ignorance on this thing because if anyone had said anything to me at all when I first started here that that sort of thing was frowned upon... <laughs> I just have to believe that Putin holds the climate agenda in such high regard that if he had only known. Now, before we go any farther, we have to really define one very important climate agenda term. Hypocrisy. The practice of professing beliefs, feelings, or virtues that one does not hold or possess, dissimulation of one's real character or belief, especially a false assumption of piety or virtue, a feigning to be better than one is, the action or character of a hypocrite. See also United States climate czar John Kerry. Now, in an article from the New York Post from August 2021, an analysis was done on Kerry's private jet usage thus far in that single year. Turns out his little luxury, so he doesn't have to fly with the rest of the unwashed filth, has spewed approximately 140 metric tons of carbon into the air. To give you some perspective, the average household in the United States emits about 20 metric tons per year. So basically, Kerry is pumping the annual carbon emission of a home from his airplane into the air every single month. Additionally, uh, of course, Carrie and his wife own multiple homes, one of which is a beachfront home in Martha's Vineyard. We all know that climate change causes seas to rise. I mean, that's clearly settled science. So why would Carrie buy a house on the water? Especially when you consider that he's said before that even if the globe went zero emissions today, it would be too late. We're, we're just past the point of no return. So what's he doing? Is this an insurance scam? Buy it for $12 million, let it appreciate, let it get totally submerged under global warming sea rising waters, then claim you had all sorts of you know, like priceless art and gold bricks in there. I don't know. Boom. A lifetime free of poverty for Johnny. And here's what's funny. He and the wife were under intense scrutiny for their pretty lavish lifestyle. You know, homes, private jet, yacht, multiple cars, flying around the globe telling all of us commoners to stop driving to work so much. And Snopes, you know, the fact-checking, totally unbiased leftist website, felt they needed to chime in because of all of this scrutiny. After what I can only assume to be a massive, undercover, almost ninja-like investigation, did they say that the claim that Carrie owned multiple homes, cars, a plane, and a yacht, that was only mixed truth. As he didn't own most of that stuff, his wife owns that stuff. So stop saying John does. He's innocent. So look, Carrie is probably, you know, a little senile. He is 78 years old at this point, and he's 
obviously a hypocrite that obviously doesn't believe in the terrors of global warming that he preaches at everyone, but obviously sees the very lucrative potential of yelling at all the rest of us to stop killing his planet. I'm sure that his buddy Al Gore, you remember him, he's the guy that created the internet, uh, he, I'm sure he's given him some tips on how to make a ton of money while pretending to care about the planet. Now, I'm not going to get into the insanity of the concept of man-caused global warming and how every prediction made by so-called climate scientists and climate models for the last 50 years has been wrong. I'm not going to go into the fact that our planet is greener now than at any time in recorded history due to the fact that God designed green leafy things to absolutely crave CO2. Furthermore, I'm not going to talk about the fact that nobody really knows what the temperature of the planet is supposed to be. We only know that we don't want the temperature of the planet to change because we like it this temperature. We've built our stuff and buried our piping and and pretty much designed everything with the assumption that either the climate is a constant or that we can hold it constant through sheer willpower and massive sacrifices and huge amounts of money. Case in point, another part of Kerry's plea to Putin not to invade Ukraine, you know, for climate purposes, he said, so you know, I think hopefully President Putin would realize that in the northern part of his country, they used to live on 66% of the nation that was over frozen land. Now it's thawing, and his infrastructure is at risk, and the people of Russia are at risk. And so I hope President Putin will help us to stay on track with respect to what we need to do for the climate. And I'm also not going to talk about the illogical idea that little humans can cause the entire planet to go all climate wackerdoodle when there's a huge hot, fiery orb up above, hey, don't stare at it, and massive heat-sinking basins full of water covering about 70% of the planet's surface here below to a point where we've now shot straight into no way back from impending heat death. Now, I've talked about some of this before in past episodes, but what I want to talk about is being a man of integrity. Now, the Bible doesn't say a lot about integrity specifically using that word, but what it does say speaks volumes in itself. Proverbs makes a few comments. The just man walketh in his integrity, and better is the poor that walketh in his integrity than he that is perverse in his lips and is a fool. And remember, a fool is easily defined. In Psalms, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who do good. Now, Job was a man who refused to sacrifice his integrity, when from a human standpoint, I don't think one person would blame him if he had. But even when his wife said, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Job maintained, Till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me. Even the Lord himself commented on Job's integrity when talking to Satan, and quote says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. But even with God calling Job 
a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, we actually find God scolding Job toward the end of the book for questioning why a sovereign and all-loving God would seemingly punish him. This, however, did not detract from his integrity, his refusal to bend from what he knew to be true, despite the unbelievable circumstances he was in. And let's look at David for a minute. Multiple times David mentions his integrity in Psalms, how he walks in integrity, how he asks to be judged not by man, but by God, based on his integrity, how God upholds him in his integrity. And yet we know that David was far from perfect. So how could he claim this? He wasn't being dismissive or arrogant. He was clinging to the promise that God will justify him by his faith, that although he was a sinner, God counted David's faith as righteousness. So being a man of integrity doesn't mean being a perfect person. Thank God he doesn't require that. Being a man of integrity is not something that only a Christian can do. There are many non-Christians that have been, or currently are, people of integrity. Having integrity is simple in theory. Be the same person in private that you are in public, that you are with family, friends, or strangers. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Know what you believe and don't compromise your beliefs. And, and I would add here, unless you're proven that your belief was wrong. And as simple as it is in theory, integrity is just as difficult in practice. It's easy to be a different person with family than you are with associates, friends, or strangers. And easy again to be a different person alone than you are when you're with any of these. It's generally easier to bow to external pressure, go along to get along, so to speak. And if you need to compromise, you know, just a little bit of your integrity, well, sometimes sacrifices have to be made. But what we see with John Kerry is a man who has never displayed integrity. You can look up his history going back to at least his days associated with the Vietnam War. He's been a man willing to sell his soul for the right bowl of stew, as it were. And when you look at his comments about the climate and you look at his hypocrisy regarding his lifestyle and his carbon footprint, and when you look at his excuses and justification that he's just too important, he must do things like fly on a private jet. And then you see the fact that he perceives little to no value in human lives lost, the freedoms being stolen, the lies being told, in and about Ukraine, and you take all this and put it together, and you can draw no other logical conclusion but that he simply cares about himself, and most especially, money. And, and whether he really believes that a war will impact the climate or not, which I think is probably statistically impossible when factored against everything else that puts greenhouse gases into the air, his agenda is to be able to use anything and anyone he can to propel himself further, to increase his power, control, and notoriety, and to pad his bank account. As Proverbs says, better is the poor that walketh in his integrity. Now my plea to you, and when I say you, I'm looking back at myself as well, be a man or woman of integrity. Steal yourself against the outside pressures, whatever they may be. Ground yourself in the truth of God's word. Be like Job. And when in the face of adversity, in the face of peer pressure, in the face of temptation, say, till I die, I will not remove my integrity from me. And at the same time, know that as a Christian, even as a Christian, you will fail. 
you will compromise your integrity. Hope and pray that it will be at most small and infrequent, but know that as humans, this is inevitable. But also know that as Christians, Jesus died for that sin already. He already took your punishment for your compromise. So confess it, thank him, praise him, then move on with life, striving even harder to be like Job and to be like Jesus. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.